what that macarena is all about. So let's have a little fun here. Relax. In August of 1996, you could not escape this song. The Macarena was sweeping America. It was blasted throughout the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. I was there. It was awkward. First Lady Hillary Clinton beamed while Democrats from the 90s danced on the convention floor. The videos on YouTube are truly awful. Waiting in the wings was a nervous Illinois state representative, forced to endure this song before he made his big break on the national stage. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome congressional candidate and state representative Rod Blagojevich of Illinois. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, these speaking slots at the Democratic National Convention are deeply coveted, even the one Rod had. They provide candidates with a national platform to introduce themselves. My father came to Chicago as a refugee from post-World War Europe. He loved this country because of the freedom and opportunity it provides for all who are willing to work. Across our city... This is a moment when Rod Blagojevich is on his way, heading to a general election victory in the U.S. Congress. And from there, he'd become governor. Thank you. You know that the line graph is going way up for Rod. But this is the story of two Democratic national conventions. And just eight years later, in 2004, Rod attended another one. By the time you get to the convention in Boston. The next senator from the state of Illinois, Barack Obama. Like Bogoyevich, Obama was only an Illinois state legislator when he first spoke at the DNC. And their speeches began similarly. My father was a foreign student. Born and raised in a small village in Kenya. Through hard work and perseverance, my father got a scholarship to study in a magical place, America. Between these two conventions, an enormous amount had happened to Rod Blagojevich. On Obama's big night, political consultant Pete Giangreco stood with Rod on the floor, watching. And that was the moment where the two of their lines crossed on the graph. Rod's line was going down. And here was Brock's just shooting to the sky when he gave that speech. The hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him, too. How did it seem like Rod was processing that speech at the time? He, he was kind of smoldering. It's like, this guy's stealing my thunder. This guy's in my lane. This guy stole my path. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Dave McKinney, and this is Public Official A. This is our podcast about the bringing down of a charismatic politician by a criminal investigation. Previously, we looked at the role that Rod's father-in-law, Dick Mell, had in his son-in-law's rise. I think he needed my father to break in, you know what I'm saying? Because Chicago's just that way, right? Soon after Rod became governor of Illinois, an FBI investigation began that would reach into the Blagojevich orbit. I was fuming, and I called the FBI. When I called them, they said, nobody ever calls the FBI. (laughs) After feeling snubbed, Dick Mell made an accusation with big consequences for his son-in-law. 
that pretty much started that whole investigation on us. I can only tell you that we're going to cooperate and we look forward to a full vindication and the quote Teddy Roosevelt, we're as clean as a houndstooth when it comes to those kinds of things. Now, in this episode, we enter the mind of Rod Blagojevich and look at how his obsession with climbing the ladder ultimately brings him down. Part three, Rod likes to run. In 1999, the U.S. was leading a bombing campaign in Serbia, and three American soldiers were being held captive there. As the only Serbian-American congressman, Rod Blagojevich went to personally petition dictator Slobodan Milosevic for the soldiers' release. We are uh, going out for an early morning jog in Belgrade, bombed out Belgrade. For a relatively unknown backbench congressman, this was a real opportunity for some national publicity. It is about, let's see, two minutes after 5 a.m., and um, we're counting on the fact that right about this time, the bombing intensity kind of slows up. Rod took the opportunity to talk to a film crew about how personal the trip felt. Last time my dad was in Belgrade was uh, in 1941 when uh, Nazi bombs were falling on the city. And here I am coming back when the irony is the United States is bombing the place my dad came from. Kind of ironic. And the trip was a success. The three captive U.S. soldiers were released and applauded by Blagojevich. And let me say that as I leave Yugoslavia, I leave loving the Serbian people. The Serbia trip was big and splashy, and Blagojevich would later say that the release of the soldiers helped speed up the end of the war. It was a seemingly historic event, with Rod at the center of it. Yeah, that was, that was a wild time. Yeah. Today, 20 years later, Rod's wife, Patty, and I are sitting in the Blagojevich's home. What made him want to be governor? Um, I think that I, he got like a lot of good press when he went to Serbia, mm-hmm. and that kind of really raised his profile. And, you know, they had talked about, you know, that what's the next step. I, I think it was just an opportunity that presented itself. And so it, it just sort of looked like a natural rung up on the ladder. Yeah. Um, kind of wish he'd lost, you know. <laughs> I understand what Patty's saying here. It's tough to look back at Rod's successes as a candidate without thinking about where he is today. But sitting in his home, surrounded by his things, I can see plenty of evidence that Rod always had grand aspirations. This will give you some idea, Rod. This is not the, these are not the musings of a crook. Patty goes over to Rod's desk and pulls out a couple of cigar boxes. She opens them up and shows me that they're filled with index cards, with faded quotes from great men, written in Rod's handwriting. Throughout his years, he always write down quotes that he liked. Isn't that something? I guess as he was growing up, the, I guess the grayer they are, the older they are. Mm-hmm. So this is the first one that I've opened up to, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> We're in Rod's old study, where he did most of his work. In the corner is one of those giant globes as big as an armchair, something a kid might walk up to and spin. The walls are floor-to-ceiling with books profiling historic figures of all kinds. Queen Elizabeth I, Prussian King Frederick the Great, President Richard Nixon. Rod knew all the presidents backwards and forwards when he was like in fifth grade. You know, he would like sit there with encyclopedias that his mom scrimped and saved to buy and read all about them. 
My mother borrowed money when I was very little, uh, probably four years old, as a down payment on the World Book Encyclopedia. And she was paying those off on installment way until I was in college. And I used to love those books. And I used to lay on the living room floor and just devour figures in history. And I kind of stumbled into the presidents. While Rod was running for governor in 2002, he came into our studios at WBEZ, where our host tested him on his memorization of the presidents. So if I tossed out, say, the 14th president, you would come back with? I'd come back with Franklin Pierce. (laughs) This morphed into a pretty weird party trick where Rod could take a list of random objects and use the order of the presidents to recite back the objects in order. I used to make money on this in college because people would bet me that I couldn't do it. So you give Rod a list of random objects. Orange, pencil, microphone, tiger, you know, whatever. And you give Rod some time to look at the list, and he mentally assigns an object to each president. As long as I can picture it, you can give it to me right now, and it probably takes like a half an hour, and I can give it back to you. And, you know, in order, backwards, and then you can throw numbers at me. You know, give me number 28, and then I'll picture Woodrow Wilson, you know, whatever that, let's say, pencil. Pencil coming out of his ear. It has to be a ridiculous vision, though. But I can do it. And if, you know, if you want to bet the whole campaign for governor on this... I'll roll the dice here, make one heap of all my winnings right here, and bet it. (laughs) I remember the first time I met Rod. It was on the campaign trail, and he came to meet reporters in the state capitol. He left us all with this dried-up sponge with his hard-to-pronounce last name on it. The message was that he wanted to be that guy to come in and clean up Illinois' ethically rancid state government. Thank you. You're just saying, go, Rod, go, because you can't say Blagojevich. The opening line in his stump speech was, my name is Eastern European. My story is American. My father was an immigrant who came here without a penny in his pocket, didn't speak a word of English, but he brought with him values, American values. Rod was an incredible retail politician. He knew how to work a room, and he never lost an election. You know, Rod likes to run, you know, but like even during those campaigns, he was like not even running because he was just trying to meet every person, trying to shake every hand. Rod Blagojevich, hi. How are you? I'm running against the guy on your bag. Yeah, but you know, the the Republicans are falling apart. I had to go get a Democrat bag. Oh, you got one too. Well, that's fantastic. Is he a natural kind of extrovert, would you say? Now, if you talk to him, he'd say he's an introvert. But he, he looks like he's an extrovert right. because he relates yeah. to people so well. Yeah. I would say that if you asked Rod what place he wanted to be most in the world at a given night would be like home with me, Amy, and Annie in our family room watching old movies on TV. There's sort of a cardboard cutout of him now. He's a lot more complex guy than people give him credit for. Consultant P.G. and Greco worked closely with Rod during the governor's race. He would have to really work himself up to go out there and do this. And I, I think inside there was this question even in him as whether he was really up to it. And he'd say, you know, you guys make this sound like it's so easy. I'm the one who has to go out there and perform. But all that performance worked. Rod ended up winning the 2002 governor's election by a very healthy margin. And he decided on a meaningful venue for his victory party. It was at the plant where his Serbian immigrant father had worked. A giant factory. Finkel steel. Like you can smell the coke burning and you see the grease. And like who has an election night party in a steel mill? 
You know, they're always down at the Hyatt or down at one of the swanky hotels. That route, it's out in the neighborhood in a steel plant. It was perfect. It was awesome because we were out like out in the plant and they had the big banners and the stage and then this huge cabinet space just packed with people. It is time, ladies and gentlemen, for a government that's as good and as honest and as hardworking as the people of this great state. There was this great piece of Americana about, like, this is what you do. You're an immigrant, and you get a job in a steel plant, and you put your kid through college, and he ends up being governor. I mean, it was just, it was the American dream. I hate to think back at those those times, because... I mean, it must seem like a long time ago. It was a long time ago, and it was like, how can you go from being so... I mean, that's like you're on such a high, and like your husband's like the governor of like the fifth largest state. I mean, it's crazy. Mm. And people are cheering and, you know, like a rock, like you're like a rock star, you know? So Rod's the governor of Illinois. But rather than moving to the governor's mansion in Springfield, the state capital, Rod decided to stay in their family home in Chicago. The governor's mansion is a museum. You know, there are tours that go through. Like, it's not really a place to raise a family. But where was his preference to work from? I think when he was up here, he'd rather rather work out of the house, to be honest with you. I mean, he did work from home a lot. There is this criticism out there about Rod's time in office, that he was largely an absentee governor. There were a lot of really smart, hardworking people in that administration. Unless you were one of the half dozen people he would call all day from his study, you never really saw him. He was just at home all the time. So he was this just total enigma to most of them. Bradley Tusk was 29 years old when he got the call to be the deputy governor of Illinois. When I got there, I learned pretty soon that, you know, he wasn't really that engaged in the day job of actually being governor. What was his typical work day like? <laughs> I mean, the kindest way to describe it would be unconventional. He would go for a run every day, about eight, eight miles or so, I think. He spent a long time before the run getting ready and stretching and preparing, and then a long time running, and then a long time after the run, kind of winding down and showering. And so that took three, four hours every single day. Why was he into running like that? Probably there was a lot of cognitive dissonance in his head where, you know, on one hand, he was this incredibly ambitious, talented guy. On the other hand, he really didn't function all that normally. And my guess is when he was running, he felt good and he felt good about himself and he wanted to chase that high. So, you know, he's spending his day exercising, reading, talking on the phone, things that are probably enjoyable for a lot of people but weren't necessarily all that related to the running of the state of Illinois. I always believe my husband's a hard worker. It's not like you've got a nine-to-five job, you know. So if he's, like, home and he gets his run-in at 10 o'clock in the morning, it doesn't mean he's not working because he's got some event tonight that he's got to go to that's part of being governor. That's all part Mm -hmm. of the job. So it was always something to do. For a state governor, there are, of course, countless events, ribbon cuttings, parades, bill signing ceremonies. And no matter how you interpret Rod's work ethic, he definitely looked good doing that stuff. He wanted to wear the, the fancy suit and have the perfect hair and have this look. All politicians want to look good, but Blagojevich took it to another level. Rod had this perfectly tended, coal-black mane of hair. We would later learn that he started dyeing it in his 20s. Pete and Greco. He had this, this brush, this big Paul Mitchell brush. 
there were only like two of them in the world. They'd stop making them. And somehow he left it in my car one time and I'm driving him to an event or something like that. And he was absolutely panicked. Why was his hair so important to him? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But his, his hair almost had a, a, a life of its own. Look, he looked great. Um, I don't he'd know that much about the government, but he looked good. Former Deputy Governor Bradley Tusk. The job of running for office and the job of holding office are in many ways two different jobs. The skill set you need to be able to win more votes than the other guy, it really has nothing to do with your ability to then devise or execute or implement a budget or a legislative policy or plan or agenda. And Rod was unbelievably good at that first thing and had very little interest in the second thing. I don't know how we could say Rod had zero interest in legislation because who was who was leading the the way. Just this past summer, Bradley Tusk published a memoir, and he was not at all flattering about his experience working with Rod. Patty heard about it and posted on Facebook, it never ceases to amaze me the depths that some people go to make money, personally attacking and disparaging my husband's tenure as governor just to sell a book. Bradley Tusk maybe doesn't understand, like the president of General Motors is not on the assembly line sticking the bolt on the exhaust. He has got the vision of what the next prototype is going to look like in the future. Everybody's got their role to play, and Bradley was deputy governor, so it's Rod's vision, and Bradley, figure out how to make it happen. I don't know. I don't know what to say about him, except that it's like really, as far as I'm concerned, he's pretty ungrateful for the you know the tremendous experience and the opportunity he had. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It just it's it's kind of disgusting. You know, people for better or worse associate kind of what happened in the end with Rod, but there was a lot of legislation, a lot of laws passed. I mean, when you look back on that record, what kind of governor was he? I think I I, I think he was an incredibly effective governor. Here's the thing about Rod's record as governor. Sure, he was a bit absent, but during his time in office, a lot of legislation did happen. I'm most proud of the different way we're approaching some of these problems and the real changes that we're bringing. Rod raised the minimum wage twice. He did sort of emphasize with working class people and generally wanted to try to help them. Ever drive through an automatic toll plaza? The ones where you don't have to stop? Well, Rod was the first to do that. Let's get people home to their families faster. You know, every time I go through that, I'm like, thank you, Rod. There was a statewide smoking ban, free rides on public transportation for senior citizens, and the directive that pharmacists dispense birth control even if they have religious objections. I mean, this was as progressive as stuff that was going on anywhere in the country. I'm going to continue to do what I think is right, and that's one of the good things about being governor. You can do things like this. And then the big one. The first state initiative to guarantee universal health care for children, regardless of income or immigration status. It seemed like Rod felt that health care was, was almost a right. We're looking for every possible way to, to help people. And if the legislature doesn't do it on health care, then I'll do it. I still get email messages from people and Facebook messages from people. People come up to me saying how, I mean, literally children's lives were saved because of that. What's Rod's legacy? Going to jail. I keep thinking about all those biographies in Rod's study, how he was such a student of history. 
In all the books about Rod Blagojevich, the first line is never about how progressive he was. It's always about him going to prison. No one will ever say, oh, there was a good side to Rod. There was, but it was just absolutely overwhelmed by the paranoia and the nagging notion that he just, you know, didn't belong and that the elites just looked down on him. And it's, you know, that which made him a great candidate, this chip on the shoulder, was also what brought him down. What Gian Greco says here could be key to understanding Rod's downfall. That chip on Rod's shoulder came from having nothing handed to him growing up. He couldn't bear not being taken seriously by a more privileged political class, and he didn't want to owe them anything. He was going to climb that ladder on his own, whatever the cost. I mean, the, the whole thing was just like, it was like a slow-motion car crash, the whole thing. And when you, that pinnacle of election night in 2002 at Finkelsteel to the end of this thing, it just like... How the hell did this happen? There's something we've conspicuously left out here about Rod's rise. It's the lifeblood of any political climb, and it became an obsession for Rod Blagojevich. Fundraising. That's coming up next. This is Public Official A. Rod likes to run. Now, running for governor of Illinois takes a lot of money. Even back then, it took millions of dollars. And that kind of fundraising would eventually consume Blagojevich. But the journey to that end, that began in the office of his father-in-law, Dick Mill. Rod and my dad decided that they were going to try to raise a million dollars in campaign money in a month. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they just started, like, you know, trying to raise money, trying to raise money. So that way they could say, you know... We've got a million dollars in the bank and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Was Rod good at fundraising? In, in those... I think he did what he had to do. Consultant Pete Jane Greco joined the Blagojevich campaign early when Rod seemed like a long shot. People weren't taking his phone calls. They were like, ah, he's kind of a schmucko, blah, blah, blah. He was not taken seriously. And then Rod amassed a giant war chest. He all of a sudden became real. People were like, hey, you got to take this guy seriously. And that was the lesson that he probably overlearned which was that money was power. The equation that somehow money took him from a backbencher to governor, he became obsessed about it. My father worked in the steel mill. It was hard, but the work helped him build a better life for his family. For too long, With all that money, Rod was able to get on TV early, and his life started changing. It's like all of a sudden you go from being just another schmo to like somebody. Hey, you're Rob Bogoyevich. People are grabbing, hey, can I get a picture with you? Can, I, can you autograph this? Hey, meet my kid. And that was a big deal to Rod because the whole time he was growing up, he was nobody. Together, we can change things. By the end of the governor's race, Rod spent what was then a record, nearly $21 million. Lisa, how are you? I'm good. All right, so you want to talk about the Bogoyevich reign of terror. Lisa Madigan and Rod Bogoyevich did not get along. The same year that Rod became governor, Madigan was elected Illinois Attorney General, the state's top law enforcement official. From day one, it was an antagonistic relationship, and every day was yet another absurd battle. Madigan thought that Rod really had no interest in working with her or actually governing. He was distracted by the next step. He thought he should be president of the United States, and he must have thought that, you know, he needs more money for this big run he's going to make one day. There is some evidence that Rod did indeed have designs on the White House. Just nine months into his first term, 
Governor Blagojevich boarded a private plane and headed to the East Coast to raise money. Rod wound up sitting next to a prominent National Democratic fundraiser. According to that fundraiser, Rod said that as a governor, he was in a unique position to raise a lot of money. He could give out state work, then ask those contractors for contributions to his political fund. Attorney General Lisa Madigan says that's exactly what happened. Everything was for sale. Everything. If you got a job with the state, if you got an appointment to a state board or commission, if you wanted your legislation signed, if you wanted some regulatory action by the state, if you wanted the contract with the state, you were squeezed for a contribution. And it was blatant. You know, reporters knew it. Elected officials knew it. We all knew what was going on. And yet it never ended. I was one of those reporters who could see it happening. You could look at the campaign finance reports and see a contribution go into the Blagojevich Fund a day or a week after an appointment. One Chicago Sun-Times analysis found 20 companies that did business with the state gave over $900,000 to the governor's political fund. It seemed obvious, but it was difficult to prove that anything illegal was happening. You might remember in the last episode that after a long-running feud, Rod's father-in-law, Dick Mell, made an explosive public accusation, which was to change everything. Mell said that Bogoyevich's top fundraiser, Chris Kelly, was trading appointments for $50,000 checks to the governor's political fund. Attorney General Lisa Madigan went into action when she heard that. Finally, there was a credible allegation that Rod was engaged in pervasive pay-to-play. And we'd been able to identify some of it circumstantially, but finally you had somebody on the inside who had absolute knowledge of how Bogoyevich and the campaign operated. Lisa Madigan opened an investigation soon after Dick Mell made his accusation. As a result, she says her office was blackballed. She says Blagojevich appointees were ordered not to talk to her office in retaliation for the investigation. Understand the complete absurdity of that. As the lawyer for the state, I had at times 30,000 cases where I'm defending the state of Illinois. We have to be in constant communications with these people. And they were told they weren't allowed to talk to us. And so that's a big example. But the petty example is, you know, they were so angry about what we were doing They wouldn't have our bathrooms clean. The management of the building that housed Madigan's office just happened to be controlled by the governor. People had to bring in their own soap and towels. Things would break and leak, wouldn't come to fix them. It's one of the reasons I call it the Bogoyevich reign of terror. I'm not joking. The oppressive nature of having to work for state government when the governor himself is working against the state, and everybody's aware of it. It's insane. Something had really changed between the night at Finkel Steel and when we were sort of brought back in for the re-elect. It's like, what the hell happened here? After helping get Rod elected, consultant Pichi and Greco stepped away from Blagojevich. But then he returned to help with the re-election campaign. The pressure of the investigation amped up the pressure to raise money. Rod's re-election campaign was not off to a great start. Not only was there the public feud with his father-in-law, but the attorney general, a fellow Democrat, is investigating him. And there are some definite hints that the FBI is nosing around as well. There was a real bunker mentality. You had 
this investigation that was driving the need for more money, which was then driving the need to cut more corners and do things that probably weren't on the square, which only fed the investigation, which only fed the need for money. We're going to need 10 million. We're going to need 15 million. We're going to need 20 million. Did you have a sense that he thought he had this investigation under control, that it wasn't going to touch him? Yeah, I mean, it was just, this is all bullshit. This is just the way the game is played. In Illinois politics, this was the way the game was played. Campaign donors always were the ones with big state contracts. At the time, there was nothing illegal about state contractors giving contributions. There just couldn't be an explicit quid pro quo. It's a gray area. But Peachy and Greco thinks lines were being crossed. Every campaign tries to push the envelope on raising money. These guys tore the envelope up. It was eye-opening. It was a little frightening. Gian Greco attended a meeting at Blagojevich campaign headquarters. There's about a half dozen people there, including the governor and chief fundraiser Chris Kelly. Pete makes the suggestion that they stop taking contributions from state contractors. Maybe it would help tamp down some of the negative stories out there. Chris Kelly was not happy. I thought Chris was going to hit me. He was enraged, screaming. And he's pointing in the other room at this computer. And he says, I've built a fundraising machine here. We've got 30,000 state contractors' names in the database. And we're going through every one of them. And every one of them is going to have to pony up. And I remember turning to my business partner and saying, this is not going to end well. If you're being pretty generous to Rod, so far there's some plausible deniability. We haven't described anything where Rod was personally involved in hammering people with state business for money. That sort of stuff was left to people like Tony Resco and Chris Kelly. But here's a story where Rod was clearly implicated, and it involved then-Congressman, later Chicago Mayor, Rahm Emanuel. The story involves a state grant for a school. I had heard that Rod had promised Rahm $2 million for an athletic facility in Rahm's district, and the grant wasn't being given, and it wasn't being given, and it wasn't being given. And one day, Rahm called me and just exploded. Then-Deputy Governor Bradley Tusk. He was really upset, and keep in mind, it seemed like he had a point. It was for a good cause. It was for a school. And Rahm was in the middle of running the Democratic re-election campaign for the House Democrats, and he was in the process of taking back the House of Representatives for the Democrats. So it's someone who is really powerful and sees me someone that you didn't really want to screw around with. And so that night, I was on the phone with Blagojevich, and somewhere in the conversation, I said, hey, you know, what's this thing with Rahm? He's really mad. He's really upset. According to Tusk, Rod then said that he wanted Rahm's brother, a powerful Hollywood agent, to hold a fundraiser for the Blagojevich campaign. He said, tell Rahm that, you know, I need to get the fundraiser first and then he can have the grant. And obviously, it was pretty clear to me, and I think probably anyone listening to this right now, that that's illegal. You can't link a, a government grant for a school to political donations. And so I hung up the phone with him. Tusk then called the top lawyer in the governor's office and said, You need to get your client under control. He said, what do you mean? And I said, Here's what he just did. And that was it. The grant was eventually given. The fundraiser never happened. This episode would have legal consequences later, but it also taught Bradley Tusk a lot about Rod. He was really, really consumed with how much money he could raise. But I think even more than that, he was really insecure about his ability to actually govern, to think through ideas and policies and articulate them. 
And he knew that if he had enough money and he had the right ad maker and they had the right message, um, that could carry the day no matter what. And I think he really relied on that. Patty Bulgojevich says there's nothing complicated or corrupt about Rod's fundraising operation. It's just politics as usual. This is just what you need to do to stay in office. If he didn't have any money in his campaign fund, it would, you know, invite opponents because they'd see him as weak and not being able to fight off any opponents. And then if you looked weak like that, then, you know, then you look like a lame duck. Then you can't get anything done because they think that you're not going to be back for a second term. So it's very important to have that position of strength. Rod's position would have to be strong because there was more bad news on the way. Just before the 2006 general election, two of Blagojevich's fundraisers were indicted. They were charged with trying to extort millions from people wanting to do business with two state boards. One of those fundraisers was Tony Resco, who the indictment alleged was raising money for an unnamed public official A. If, in fact, these allegations relating to Tony are true, uh, he betrayed my trust. He lied to me. He deceived me. But a lot more important than that, he violated the public trust. Blagojevich tried to downplay his ties with Resco and his role within the administration, even though Resco was giving Rod the names of campaign donors to put on state boards and commissions, and Rod was doing it. During this press conference, Rod basically said this was just a couple of bad actors and he wasn't directly implicated. This is a personal scheme by two people who allegedly were trying to enrich themselves and were acting on their own. Uh, to enrich themselves. And if, in fact, they did these things, they broke the law, they ought to be punished. Blagojevich is vulnerable. He had plenty of bad headlines. State officials were after him. The FBI was after him. And then there were his political opponents. In 2006, Rod faced Republican Judy Barr Topinka. She was a chain smoker, a caffeine addict, an accordion player. Topinka fired from the hip like in this televised debate. The most investigated uh, administration in the state and public official A. I still have a name. You're public official A. For that race, Rod was on TV a lot. According to my opponent, I'm the worst person on earth and the world is coming to an end. Come on, let's get real. Blagojevich had a record $27 million in the bank, and the airwaves were filled with ads highlighting some strange thing that Topinka said, followed by his attack slogan. Topinka opposes an assault weapons ban supported by our police because she says it could ban a rolling pin. What's she thinking? What is Judy Barr Topinka thinking? Judy Barr Topinka, what's she thinking? Nothing but attacks and complaints. What's she thinking? Topinka called the ad campaign a big tsunami of misery. Blagojevich outspent her three to one. As Patty said earlier, if Rod didn't have any money in his campaign fund, he wouldn't be able to fight off his opponents. Rod bought everybody's attention, and he was taken seriously. In spite of all the scandals and indictments, Rod wound up winning re-election by almost 10 points. Blagojevich again had his victory party at Finkel Steel. Deputy Governor Bradley Tusk was with him backstage. I remember going into the kind of dressing room to see him before he went out to speak to the crowd. And his words kind of shocked me because he talked about how now he was stuck in Illinois for four more years and stuck in Springfield and stuck in the governor's mansion, which he actually wanted to anyway. And he was just bitter. 
keep making progress for people. That is what we've done, and that is what we'll do. He had just spent four pretty brutal years fighting with his family, fighting with everyone in the state, facing federal investigation. And so I guess you could look at it and just say that all the bad parts of the job weren't going to go away. The good parts of the job weren't that good for him in the first place. And so uh, I guess that was more depressing than that. I want to thank my wife, Patty, and my two daughters, Amy and Annie. I want to thank them for being the best part of my life. It was not as good. It was just, there was a lot less joy. And it was just, you know, the bloom had come off the rose with the job by, the, by that time for sure. I want the people of Illinois to know you ain't seen nothing yet. Do you have any idea what made him so bitter? I think he was jealous of Obama. I don't know about that. The um, I think that, like, maybe he saw, like, Obama was on this trajectory, right? And he felt like he's now locked in for another four years, not going to be able to get things done, you know, got to deal with these investigations, mm-hmm. you know. Of course he's envious of, like, this, like, path that somebody else is on that he, you know, probably wished he was on instead of having to deal with what he's dealing with. In public. Rod never said anything against Obama. That was not true in private. Peachy and Greco. He was very derisive towards Barack. He, he'd referred to him as Barry, Barry Obama, when you talk to him on the phone. He's a phony Barry Obama. Before he became a U.S. senator, Obama had been an Illinois state senator while Blagojevich was governor. And over the next couple of years after Rod's reelection. Blagojevich would have to watch Obama getting a ton of national attention and watch as his presidential campaign gathered steam. Let me ask all of you, show of hands, who's for Barack Obama in this room? Blagojevich went to the 2008 Democratic National Convention where Obama would accept his party's nomination for president of the United States. Rod spoke at a breakfast for the Illinois delegation. For a guy who knows how to work a room, he sounded flat. Show of hands, how many of you believe the things that Barack Obama's candidacy stands for? Those of us who are Illinois Democrats take great pride in the fact that Barack comes from our state, that we know him, and that we saw him rise to the success that he enjoys. And I know everyone here is going to... Rod's a big student of history, right? So I think that he was not that personally impressed with, with Barack. The fact that he became president probably irked him. On the morning of Obama's historic victory that November, the feds were listening in to Rod's calls. My upward trajectory is fucking stalled, if not fucking terminally wounded, you know, by Obama now. Okay? Next time on Public Official A, The Tapes. I fucking busted my ass and pissed people off and I gave your grandmother a free fucking ride on a bus. Okay? I gave your fucking baby a chance to have health care. And what do I get for that? Only 13% of y'all out there think I'm doing a good job. So fuck all of you. Public Official A is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Dave McKinney. The producer is Colin McNulty. The executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Our intern is Sophie Lalonde. Special thanks to Al Keefe, 
Brendan Banizak, and Tony Arnold. The show is mixed by Adam Yaffe. If you like what you heard, leave us a rating or a review. It really helps. See you next time.